A couple was watching for deer on a rural road in Tennessee when they saw the unimaginable, the lifeless body of 23-year-old Brooke Greg Morris. As the police backtracked her movements on the day of her death, they slowly built a circumstantial case pointing at one person. But would it be enough for a conviction? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Hello and welcome to Crime Lines, or welcome back if you are a returning listener. I appreciate everyone who listens, even if it is just an episode here or there. If you do want to make sure you get updated about new episodes, subscribe to Crime Lines in your podcast app. Even if you don't listen to every episode, it will let you know when a new episode is out there, and you can see if it's a case you want to hear more about. I want to thank Angelique for recommending tonight's case to me. We are very lucky. There are some legal documents out there that really give us a blow-by-blow of the investigation. So that's primarily what we are going to follow. Let's start on the night of October 14th, 2011. Brooke Greg Morris, who was 23 at the time, went out to a concert with friends. Brooke's son was with her ex-husband for the weekend. The two had shared custody, so Brooke had a weekend full of plans with her friends. She was going to a concert on Friday night and then tailgating with friends all day on Saturday in Knoxville, Tennessee. She was going to be watching the University of Tennessee football game with them. This would be a typical weekend during football season for Brooke, or at least On the weekends, her son was with his dad. She was also looking forward to seeing her friend Daniel Hawkins, who was visiting for the weekend from Colorado. So on Friday night, Brooke met up with friends for dinner in Knoxville. When it was time to leave the restaurant to go to the concert, Brooke decided to leave her car at the restaurant and ride to the concert with someone else. After the concert, Brooke ended up spending the night at her friend's house, leaving her car overnight in the parking lot of that restaurant. On Saturday morning, after they got up, Brooke and her friend had a little bit of an argument, a little bickering over Brooke having borrowed something from the friend's closet without permission. So while they still did the tailgating together with their friends, Brooke really wasn't feeling it. Brooke wanted to go home and change her clothes. Brooke has been described by her family and friends as a girly girl, someone who was particular about her clothing and her hair and her makeup. So she's dressed for tailgating. We're talking jeans and an orange shirt. And she didn't want to wear that the rest of the day. She called a few friends from downtown Knoxville, trying to find someone to give her a ride to her car, which again is in that restaurant parking lot. Brooke's friends at the tailgating party assumed she must have found someone because at some point that day, she just seemed to disappear from the party. No one thought anything of it since it was busy and it's not like people are keeping track of everyone else's whereabouts. There's a lot of mingling going on. Around 8 p.m., about 40 miles from Knoxville, 
a couple was driving down an unlit rural road, keeping an eye out for any deer that may dart in front of them. The wife, Deborah, saw what she thought was a person on the side of the road, right on the white line of the shoulder. So they turned the car around to see what was going on, and they noticed that the person, who was a woman, was covered in blood. Larry, the husband, checked for a pulse but couldn't find one. They called 911, and an officer arrived within minutes with the EMTs not that far behind them. The paramedics confirmed death and that there was nothing they could do. The paramedics did find a cell phone under the body, and the responding officer told them to turn the phone off and put it on the woman's chest to secure it while they waited for the detectives to come out to the scene. They then just backed up and kept the area secure. The detectives arrived and quickly identified the deceased as Brooke Morris, since her purse was at the scene, along with her wallet and her ID. She had been shot three times, and based on the evidence, she had been shot where she was found. Not only was there blood and a blood trail, they found two unfired and three fired shell casings near her body. This was not just a dump site, and there was no other crime scene to look for. Using Brooke's cell phone, the investigators looked for both next of kin and also who she had been in contact with recently, that day, and a few names popped up. They also ran a background check on Brooke in general, and they found that she had an ex-husband. So before they even started on the list of people who she had been in contact with that day, they decided to pay a visit to her ex-husband, Clayton Morris. Brooke and Clayton had a relatively short marriage. When Brooke was 20, she found out she was pregnant with their son, and they arranged to get married pretty quickly in January 2008. But the relationship was rocky for the two years that they stayed together. Brooke eventually moved out. She didn't go far, though. She found a place nearby so they could more easily share custody. In November 2010, the divorce was final. But it's not like the end of a marriage is an end of the issues, particularly when there is a minor child involved. Marriage, divorce, and co-parenting, none of them are easy, and they were young and new to all of it. So as her ex-husband, Clayton was one of the first people they wanted to talk to. When the detectives went to Clayton's home, it was the middle of the night. They didn't tell him what had happened because they wanted to gauge his reaction to their questions. And his reaction was a lot of confusion. But he answered all of their questions about where he was that day. He was at work first, then he was home with his son. And Clayton, while on paper looked like a very good suspect, it didn't really turn out to be the reality. His alibi was later verified, and he didn't spend much time on the suspect list. And Brooke's family never thought of Clayton as a reasonable suspect. Regardless of his relationship status with Brooke or whether or not they were arguing, 
he was a good person. He wouldn't have done something like this. So the next person investigators wanted to talk to was Daniel Hawkins, Brooke's friend from Colorado. He had texted her phone a number of times that day, and even that night after her body had been found. But he didn't answer when the police called him in the middle of the night. And since he was only visiting for the weekend, they didn't know where he was staying. While still hoping to make contact with Daniel soon, the investigators moved on down the list. In running a quick background check on Brooke, they found that she had an order of protection taken out on a 40-year-old man named Sean Smoot. So the police issued a bolo be on the lookout for Sean when they also couldn't reach him by phone. Two investigators went to his townhouse and saw his car was parked out front. They watched the home for about an hour before going up to the door around 6 a.m. When Sean came to the door, he looked like he had just woken up. He was only wearing his boxers. The detectives asked if they could ask him some questions, and after Sean got dressed, they did. The first question they had was, did he know Brooke Morris? Sean said that he did and that Brooke had worked for him and they briefly dated. The two had actually met shortly after Brooke's separation from Clayton. She was looking for a stable job that would have room for advancement. And she found that as an assistant at an Allstate insurance office run by Sean. The two had a short affair at one point, which for Brooke didn't seem that deep. She had just come out of a two-year marriage, so she wasn't looking to jump into another relationship immediately. Sean told the police that the romantic relationship was over and the two remained friends. Then Sean asked what was going on, and the investigators did like they did with Clayton. They withheld info. They wanted to judge his reaction. They told him that they were conducting a welfare check on Brooke and asked when did Sean last see her. Sean said it was between 6.30 and 7 p.m. the night before. So we're talking an hour to an hour and a half before Brooke was found dead. Sean then walked the police through the day. He said Brooke had first called him sometime around 9.20 in the morning asking to get a ride to her car. He said he couldn't come get her because he wasn't in the area and he had no plans of going downtown. Over the course of the next few hours, they stayed in touch through some phone calls and some texts. When Brooke couldn't find a ride home from anyone else, Sean did eventually go and pick her up around 1 p.m. And first he took her back to her house so she could shower and change. Then the two went out to eat at Buffalo Wild Wings, where they watched the football game together. And then they went to the Wild Wings Cafe nearby to have a couple of beers. This would have been around 5.30. Brooke had her plans to go see Daniel Hawkins that night while he was in town, so at this point, Sean brought her to her car and dropped her off. He said it would have been around 6.30 or 7 that they said goodbye and he drove off. He did say that he did not see her get into her car. 
Sean then went home, he took a nap, and he just hung around the house. The investigators then asked Sean if he owned any guns, and he admitted to owning a shotgun. When they asked about handguns specifically, only then did he admit he also did own a handgun. And it was at this point in the conversation that they decided to turn up the heat on Sean a little and tell him that they were there to investigate a murder, Brooks' murder. When they told Sean that Brooks' body had been found and that she had been murdered, Sean just shook his head and said, okay. Then they asked Sean what he would say if they told him that his cell phone had been in the area of the crime scene, and Sean did not answer. The phone hadn't been traced to that area, so my guess is they're just assessing any story he might then come up with. They then told Sean that they didn't believe he was being completely honest, and it wouldn't look good for him if his story did not match the evidence. And at this point, Sean altered his story a little. He said that after he dropped Brooke off at her car, he did go home. But then he decided to drive to South Carolina on a whim. On the way, he changed his mind and turned back around. He stopped at a liquor store before heading home. Sean was then informed at this point he was considered a suspect and that he would be detained while they searched his house. Sean had also possibly admitted to violating that restraining order since it was still active, and here he is saying that he went out with Brooke the day before. It would turn out that he actually wasn't in violation of the order, and to explain that, we're going to have to back up and get into the details surrounding the order, including why it was given. It really started on January 4th, 2011, when Sean was with his pregnant wife, Michelle. Sean was having some car trouble, so Michelle followed him from his office to the house while he drove his car, then he parked his car, and she drove him back to work. On the drive back to the office, Sean told Michelle that this woman who worked for him named Brooke was crazy, and she was going to tell Michelle that he and Brooke were having an affair. And as he's telling Michelle this, they drove past Brooke's car, which was in a gas station parking lot near their house. Sean said, forget going to the office and they should just go home instead. Then Sean's cell phone rang. It was Brooke. Michelle took the phone and she talked with Brooke for about half an hour. During that time, Brooke confessed she and Sean were having an affair and gave information to confirm it. She knew what color underwear Sean was wearing that day, what pictures the couple had hanging up in their house, that Sean had a scar on his penis, and personal conversations that Michelle and Sean had had. When Michelle confronted Sean with all of this, he first tried to push it all off as totally explainable. 
Brooke saw his underwear when he came out of the bathroom at work without his zipper up. She knew the pictures that were on their walls because she had been at the house for a very benign reason. And she knew the details about his life because he told her about it. They were good friends. So Sean is basically saying that telling a young female employee what his penis looks like is a fair defense to all of this. But I guess he thought it was better than getting caught in an affair. Sean did finally admit to having an inappropriate relationship with Brooke, but stopped short of saying they slept together. He was trying to tell Michelle that, well, they only kissed and they went out on a couple dates. Michelle wasn't having any of it, and this was the last day they were together. In her later divorce filing, Michelle listed the next day as the date of separation. A week and a half later, Brooke's neighbor, who lived above her, heard screams from Brooke's apartment. She called the landlord, who lived next door. When the landlord, Carol, ran over, she saw Brooke shaking and crying. Brooke said that when she went into her apartment, Sean attacked her. He had been hiding in her shower, waiting for her to come home. Brooke said he threw her down and beat her head against the floor. Then he tried to rape her. By the time Carol got there, Sean was gone, and Carol called the police. I can't find any evidence that Sean was arrested for this. However, Sean had broken into the apartment through the bathroom window, and in doing so, he broke the frame and he cracked the window. So the following day, Carol's husband called Sean and told him that the damage to the window was going to cost $275 to fix, and he expected Sean to pay it. Sean agreed, and when he mailed the money, he included a note of apology. Part of it said, and I quote, women make us do crazy things. So his apology is to blame Brooke, but this is essentially a confession. Brooke went to court and got an ex parte order of protection. In her complaint, obviously she put the breaking into her house and the alleged assault, but also she listed a time when she was in Sean's truck and he put his hands on her throat. He got angry and threw his phone as well and broke the windshield in his truck. Brooke said that he told her he would kill her if she ever told his wife about their affair. These types of restraining orders, the ex parte ones, they are temporary, and they're granted after only hearing one side of the case. So this is just Brooke's side of the story. There are witnesses who can back some of it up. Of course, we have her neighbor and her landlord and Sean's quote-unquote apology note. And we also have Sean's wife, who said he showed up one day with a broken windshield. After a temporary order like this is put into effect, a full hearing is scheduled, and Sean would have to be properly served. At that time, at this hearing, he could defend himself against the accusations. So the hearing for the extended order was scheduled for February 10th. But before this hearing could take place, Brooke and Sean entered what is called an agreed or consent order of protection. It means both sides agree to the terms of the order, 
And it generally allows the person who is being accused of stalking or abuse to avoid having to admit fault or have the court find fault. Orders granted by the court also often prohibit the person from owning or possessing guns. But that was not a term Brooke insisted on in this agreed-upon order. At this point, I should also point out, Brooke is no longer working for Sean, so she didn't need to account for being in the workplace together. But an interesting thing about this understanding they came to was that Brooke wanted to be able to see Sean socially if she chose. So if they happened to be at the same party, Sean wouldn't automatically have to leave. The main thing Brooke was looking for with this order of protection was that Sean had to leave her alone when it came to unwanted contact. According to Brooke's friends, this is even why Brooke told Sean's wife about the affair. She was trying to break things off with him, and he was not leaving her alone. They characterized him as obsessed with her. Brooke's hope was that once Michelle knew about the affair, Sean would shift his focus to saving his marriage, and that would cool his feelings towards Brooke. Instead, Michelle ended things, and Sean not only lost Brooke, but he lost his family. A friend said that Sean told him Brooke had ruined his life, and this ruining was likely what triggered his breaking into her home and the alleged attack. Of course, it could be argued Sean ruined his own life, but let's get back to the investigation. Because Brooke allowed for wanted social contact in the restraining order, it turns out that Sean hadn't broken the terms by seeing Brooke or by owning the guns. But the police still had probable cause to search his home. He was, admittedly, the last person to see Brooke alive, and he had previous violent encounters with her. The most notable things they found in the search of his home were related to ballistics. They found a cardboard box with a gun case, an owner's manual for a Keltec P32, and safety locks, but no gun. The Keltec P32 is a subcompact 32 handgun. This was the same type of handgun Sean admitted to the police that he owned but it was not found in the townhouse. The police also found a box with ammunition. Some of it was the same caliber found at the murder scene. This was sent to the lab to see if any information could be determined, though without the gun, the ballistics testing would be limited. The police also followed up on Sean's story about where he and Brooke had been that day by pulling the CCTV footage. They saw Brooke and Sean leave the Wild Wings Cafe together around 6.30, just like Sean had said. Brooke was walking several steps ahead of Sean, which made it look like they weren't actually leaving together, even though they were. I don't know that I personally would have read a ton into this, but to the investigators, it looked like Brooke was more eager to get going than Sean was. 
And based on Sean's cell phone records, the police may have been onto something here. Sean texted Brooke twice while they were together at the Wild Wings Cafe. At 5.45 p.m., he texted her, don't F this up. And then at 6.31, which would have been either right before or as they were walking out the door, he texted it again, please don't F this up. Neither of these messages make any sense within the context of Sean's version of events. If, as he said, he was taking her to her car so she could go meet up with Daniel, what was he telling her not to screw up? The bartender at Wild Wings Cafe also told the police that the couple seemed tense, and Sean, who was a regular at the bar, didn't seem as talkative as usual. But Sean did not characterize their time out as anything but totally fine. These texts would make more sense in the context of what a lot of people believe was happening that night, that Brooke was insisting that things were over between them and Sean was telling her not to screw up the nice time they were having. The police did back up to look at what kind of contact Sean and Brooke had through cell records before this night. And unbeknownst to most of Brooke's friends, Brooke had been back in touch with Sean for at least a couple of months. One day in August, Brooke called him. He then called her twice that same day. Another three or four weeks go by without any communication, and then on three separate days in September, Sean called Brooke. Each time, he used star six seven so his number wouldn't show up on her caller ID, which kind of gives us the idea that this was unwanted contact. Then on September 28th, Brooke called Sean at three in the morning. There were a few more calls back and forth without Sean hiding his caller ID until October 14th. At this point, he started using star six seven again. On that day, there were 12 phone calls between Sean and Brooke, with her calling him once and him calling her 11 times. In one 30-minute period, he called four times. And of course, we know they were in contact on October 15th, the day of the murder. The majority of the texts back and forth from around 9 in the morning until 1 were about plans for the day and Brooke getting a ride to her car. Turning to cell phone tower records, Sean's phone did ping with the towers near Wild Wings Cafe until 6.31, when he sent that last don't F this up text. Then Sean's phone was completely out of use for the next two hours and 20 minutes. From the time they left the Wild Wings Cafe until 8.51 p.m., Sean's phone didn't send or receive anything, so they could not determine where it was. They couldn't tell if he took Brooke to her car or not. Not only was his cell phone off the grid, the area where Brooke's car was left was outside the reach of any security camera. 
All they know is that Sean claimed he dropped Brooke off at her car, but her car was still there. So we have two basic explanations for this. One is Sean lied, and the other is that he dropped her off at her car in the parking lot, but then Brooke got into a different car, whether willingly or not. But with Sean's cell phone being completely out of use in the time it would have taken to drive to the murder scene and back, the investigators were leaning towards door number one, Sean was lying. When Sean's cell phone came back into use, it was used off and on from 8.51 until 10.57. All the pings were near Sean's home. Then, from 11.04 until just about 11.30, the phone hit towers through Knoxville, showing that it was moving east. At 11.30, the phone started pinging through Knoxville, heading west, until it started hitting a tower near Sean's home a little before midnight. This is completely in line with Sean's story to police that he decided to head to South Carolina, but then changed his mind and turned around. But it's also something that the suspicious minds among us may think it sounds like he came home, cleaned up, and then left to dump evidence. A spontaneous trip to South Carolina that he changed his mind about 30 minutes into the drive doesn't make a whole lot of sense. When the police checked Brooke's cell phone, they found that a lot of the calls and texts that were on Sean's phone were not on hers, indicating that either Brooke cleared her call and text history periodically or the person who killed her did this. Regardless, it did make it a little harder to follow up on leads because they didn't know everyone who had been in contact with Brooke, but they still needed to make contact with Daniel Hawkins since his texts were still on her phone. Daniel actually called the police himself on Monday, October 17th, two days after the murder. He had heard from friends that Brooke had been murdered so he wanted to call and give the information they had. Though the police were narrowing in pretty quickly on Sean, they did explore this avenue. Daniel told the police that he and Brooke had gone out a few times before he moved out to Colorado for work, and they planned to hang out after the football game on Saturday night. Daniel had tickets for the game, So the timing of exactly when they were going to meet up wasn't necessarily set into stone. It depended on when the game ended and when he got out of stadium traffic. At 5.53, Daniel texted Brooke an update on where he was, but he never heard back. A few hours later, he texted again asking where she was, but this was after her murder. When he left Tennessee on Sunday, he told the police he had no idea anything bad had happened. He just assumed Brooke kind of stood him up. Now, Daniel's alibi here is pretty solid. While the game was over by the time Brooke was killed, Daniel would not have had enough time to get out of the stadium, pick Brooke up, and then make it 40 miles out of Knoxville in time for that poor couple to find her body. 
So really, within the early days of the investigation, the police had already ruled out the ex-husband and the friend, and their focus was on Sean Smoot. And then a woman named Amy Denlinger came forward, which only confirmed the police suspicions. She worked with Sean at his Allstate office. Amy told investigators that on the Monday after the murder, Sean came into the office and started disconnecting his computer. He was shaking as he did it, and Amy asked if he was okay. Sean said he wasn't, and she asked if there was anything she could do. Sean replied, turn back time. Amy then told Sean that she had heard about Brooke's death, and she had also heard that he and his roommate, Brett, were suspects. Sean told her, according to Amy, that Brett was not involved, but he didn't say anything about himself. So Amy asked, point blank, did he have any direct or indirect involvement? Sean replied, both. So, okay, what do we have as our case against Sean Smoot? He was admittedly the last person known to see Brooke alive, leaving her at her vehicle, according to him. But her car was found in the parking lot where she had left it, and the only other person other than Sean Brooke had plans with was Daniel, who was cleared through his alibi. Sean then admitted to a coworker that he was involved. But this statement was not witnessed by anyone else. This is definitely a he said, she said situation. Sean had previously broken into Brooke's apartment, and she told the judge she was afraid of him. But Sean had never admitted to, nor was he charged or convicted of any assault or battery on Brooke. The only thing he really admitted to in that apology letter was breaking the window. Then we have the gun and the ammo. Sean owned the same type of gun and the same type of ammo as was used in the murder. But the gun was never found. While the bullets found in his home could not be excluded from being a match to the ones at the scene, without a gun, the ballistics were really kind of shaky. And a 32 handgun is not uncommon here in the United States. Most guns are not uncommon here in the United States, let's be honest. So what else do we have? Sean's cell phone conveniently was not pinging on any towers in the time around the murder. But that's very circumstantial. It could be argued his phone died and he just happened to be charging it during those two hours and 20 minutes. Maybe he turned it off because he wanted to be left alone to mope and pout after Brooke left to go out with another man. I mean, I don't think that's what happened, but it could be argued. The thing this case really needed and didn't have was forensics. None of Sean's DNA was at the scene. There were no fingerprints. None of Brooke's blood was found in Sean's car. They didn't find anything like blood spatter on his shoes. They found nothing. The forensics in this case really does amount to that ballistics report. 
a report that the state couldn't guarantee would meet the bar for admission into court. The state had a circumstantial case and a suspect who maintained his innocence. As the months passed without any new or conclusive evidence appearing, the state had to take what they had to the grand jury to see if they could move forward to trial. And eight months after Brooks' murder on June 18, 2012, a grand jury returned an indictment against Sean Smoot, charging him with one count of first-degree murder. Sean did not show up for his arraignment in Tennessee. He had since moved back to his hometown in Mississippi. When the sheriff down there pulled him over to arrest him, Sean had a shotgun near his feet, extra clothes in the car, and a sleeping bag. When he was extradited, the state wanted a high bond since Sean was a flight risk after the sheriff in Mississippi characterized him as someone about to flee. The defense, of course, asked for a low bond, and the judge decided to split the difference and met in the middle of their arguments at $250,000. John did make bond, but eventually he was arrested for a DUI and charged with resisting arrest, so his bond was revoked. It ended up taking a long time for this case to make it to trial. Sean's first three attorneys left the case due to conflicts of interest. Sean then fired his fourth attorney, and his fifth attorney came on board in April 2016. Not allowing for any additional delays, the judge ordered Sean's trial to begin in August 2016, nearly five years after Brooke's murder, and more than four years after his arrest. The state had a few challenges here. One, of course, is the lack of forensic evidence. But another hurdle any prosecutor dealing with a domestic violence case has is if Sean was so abusive and so terrible, why did Brooke still have contact with him? Why did she go out with him? If she was so scared of him, why didn't she avoid him? That's something that is difficult for people to understand, and a jury is, as you know, made up of everyday people. Sean's previous violence towards Brooke was part of the case, so they had to show that he was clearly violent enough to carry out this crime while still hoping the jury understood why Brooke may not have felt so threatened by him that day. Of course, the defense underlined the weakness of the case, particularly the lack of forensic evidence. They also attacked the investigators, saying they weren't thorough enough in following leads and investigating this crime. And they said that included investigating the defendant. They just had not done a good job overall, according to the defense. But the jury disagreed. After about three hours of deliberations, they found Sean Smoot guilty of first-degree murder. In sentencing, the state was asking for life without parole due to the aggravating circumstances. The specific aggravating circumstance they were using here was that the murder was especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel, 
in that it involved torture or serious physical abuse beyond that necessary to produce death. The defense disagreed with this characterization. While still maintaining that Sean was innocent, they argued that Brooke's death was quick. She was shot to death and died within minutes, and therefore, the especially heinous or cruel argument doesn't fit, and there were no signs of torture or abuse. But the state leaned on a part of the autopsy report to counter this. While the medical examiner could not say for sure the exact order of the shots, the shot to the head had to have come last. The shot to her head hit her brainstem, so it would have been instantly fatal. Yet, she had aspirated blood and her chest cavity filled with blood from the other shots. That would not have happened if she was already dead, so the shot to the head came last. There was also blood on the soles of her shoes, indicating she was standing or sitting in a slumped position and not lying down for at least one of the shots. Basically, Brooke was still alive when her killer approached her and finished her with an execution shot. Both of the first two shots would have been fatal, making the headshot overkill. The prosecutor had the jury picture Brooke on that dark street, having been shot twice in the road, and Sean approaching her to shoot her one final time. It drove home the cruel nature of the murder, and the jury agreed this was an aggravating circumstance. Sean was sentenced to life without parole. Sean appealed, but so far he has not been successful. As we've talked about, I don't know how many times, appeals have to include everything. You have to raise your complaint at the earliest possible moment in the process for the court to even consider it. So Sean's appeal is incredibly detailed, and the source for much of the information on the investigation included in this episode. As always, I used other sources, and some parts were also interviews from Dateline. I'll have all the sources up on my website if you do want to read more. But like I said, the main source was the majority opinion in Sean's appeal, which was very detailed and thorough. Though Sean was going to spend the rest of his life in prison, Brooke's mother, Tina, wasn't done with just this conviction. In 2017, she successfully sued Sean for wrongful death. She received a $2 million judgment. At the time of the judgment, no assets had been found of Sean's to take, and being in prison the rest of his life, Sean has no potential to ever earn the money to pay off this judgment. But Tina's attorney told Knox News, quote, it was never about money. It was always about standing up for Brooke. 